0: Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design.
1: This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 377. Working Class Audio.
0: Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Goudreau.
1: Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 377 you're listening to. My guest today is recording, mix engineer and producer Rob Folson, Jr., talking to us from the DMV area. That would be the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area for those uninitiated to the term. Rob has worked with a bunch of people, including Rare Essence, the Chuck Brown Band, CeeLo Green, Citizen Cope, Blackbirds, the Huckabucks, which, of course, he is a member of, Tracy Lee, Black Alley, and many more. And we're going to talk all about his work there in the area. We're going to talk about go-go music. And we're going to talk about his work in the church. Many things to discuss. So very happy to have him on. Rob Folson Jr. coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. Let's talk about Ukraine. If you Google recording studios in Ukraine... I think you're gonna be pretty surprised at how many studios there are. Big ones, small ones, independent ones, big commercial ones. And you know, if there's a bunch of studios, there's more than likely a bunch of independent engineers as well. So I want you to take a moment and think, what would happen if all of a sudden bombs started dropping on our heads and our studios were affected and our families and our whole livelihood was destroyed? It's pretty um, depressing to think about. Yet that of course is what our brothers and sisters in the world of audio, as well as the entire population of Ukraine are going through right now. And many of you may not realize it, but there's a lot of software developers who work for a lot of American companies in Ukraine, in Cape specifically. Many of the tools that we all use have most likely been developed with the help of Ukrainian software engineers, if we're talking about software. They're not able to do their job right now, because many of them are probably out fighting for their country. And the sad thing is, is I bet that our brothers and sisters in the world of recording who live in Russia, I doubt that they're for this. So if you want to help the Ukrainian people out financially, here's a way us audio folks can do it in our own special way. First off, I want to give a shout out to our friends over at Sound Toys. They are doing a thing where they're donating 100% of their sales through March 8th to a group of organizations, of which I will link to individually, as well as the Sound Toys promotion. Because keep in mind, this episode comes out on uh, the 7th of March, and their promotion ends on March 8th. Although you may miss the promotion, you could still donate directly to these organizations that they're donating to. So, I'm gonna mention all those organizations. First off Doctors Without Borders, World Central Kitchen, the Red Cross Society of Ukraine. Uh, obviously, you can donate to UNICEF as well. I will include a link in the show notes to all these organizations, as well as the Sound Toys thing. So, if you were thinking about buying some Sound Toys plugins, just go buy them right now if you're hearing this as this show airs you can know that 100% of your sales are gonna to go to these organizations, which that's brilliant. So once again, thank you to Soundtoys for doing that. That's a, a stand-up thing to do. Other than the financial contribution, I'm not 100% sure of what else we can do. Uh, but one thing that we can do is make sure that the Ukrainian people know that we are behind them 100%. And if you're in Ukraine listening to this and you're hearing my voice, I am thinking of you and I am holding out hope that Peace can prevail and that the Russians will come to the table in good faith and a ceasefire will be lasting and peace will be lasting. Glory to Ukraine. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Let's get to it. Rob Fulson Jr. here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Matt. Talking to me from the DMV area and for the uninitiated, that's essentially, it's like the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Not from the Department of Motor Vehicles, fortunately. That's that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's like the last place you'd want to be talking to me from. Yeah. Well, welcome to the show. We'll jump right in. Where did you grow up?
0: Uh, I grew up in Southeast Washington, D.C., All my early years was in the D.C. area, elementary school, junior high school, then my high school years, I moved to Northern Virginia, Arlington, and that's when I kind of fell in love with music. Well, I fell in love with music as a youngin', but Mm -hmm. when I got in high school is when I started taking it real serious, you know. Played in a couple bands, one of them became really, really popular in the D.C. area, and during my college years, the band got really, really popular and I quit college thinking that I was gonna be a musician for the rest of my life playing in this this band. <laughs> we had a we had a pretty nice run and we're actually talking about doing a uh, reunion soon, some of the guys. But outside of that, that's pretty much the 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 early part of my years in, in music.
1: What was the name of the band?
0: It was called the Huckabucks.
1: Okay. And what kind of music yeah. was it? It was go-go. Oh, it was go-go. Well, of course, yeah. it's D.C. Of yeah. course it's go-go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I can't remember, who's the other guest that I had on that had exposure? To- Stephen Dent. Oh, Stephen Dent. That's right.
0: Yeah, he's a, he's a friend
1: of mine. That's right. Stephen, we talked about go-go music. Mm-hmm. Explain to the audience, like, what is go-go music?
0: So go-go music is a dance type of funk-based music that kind of originated from Washington, D.C., using rhythms and percussive patterns that was just kind of like made a signature. Started out like in the, the late, late 60s, early 70s. There's an artist named Chuck Brown who was known to um, be like the pioneer for the, the sound of it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a party type music. It's a dance music. We use a lot of covers in Go-Go, but, I mean, there there are a lot of nice songwriters here as well that write original stuff. But it's kind of hard to explain. You have to experience it, you know. I mm-hmm. mean, everyone that I know outside of D.C., when they hear it, they're like, I don't know how to perceive this. But when they go to a Go-Go and they experience the atmosphere, mm-hmm. then it's like it's ingrained in them. It's like they got to have it from there, you know. I would just say it's like a a really funky, percussive dance music based in the DMV area that everybody, they want that sound, you know.
1: And do you experience go-go music anywhere else geographically? That's a good question.
0: There are go-go bands that are elsewhere geographically. Like I've heard some go-go even in the UK. There's a couple bands in Atlanta right now. There's a couple bands in the LA area, I don't know how popular they are, but it's usually stemmed from someone who come from the DMV area, like as far as there's someone involved that kinda helped plant that seed and and grow that band from what I've experienced. Mm -hmm. Because the community is kinda small and everyone knows everyone. And then even when you go abroad and stuff, you know, okay, oh yeah, that's, that's my man, Doug Crowley. He used to play with Chuck Brown. He's got a band. Uh, Ricky Angles, he's got a band in Atlanta. He used to be with the Huckabucks. That kind of thing, you know what I mean? So it's like, I don't know, it's, it's only about maybe two or three degrees of separation from a band outside of D.C. that's playing go-go mm-hmm. to being tied into the D.C. area.
1: It's odd to me in that it's so tied to the D.C. area and that it hasn't become more widespread Right. Whereas, you know, rap and hip-hop and punk rock and heavy metal and just go worldwide, why do you think the world doesn't know what Go-Go is?
0: It would be my guess that a lot of the bands that work here in the DMV area, I think they want to get out and explore and and take it worldwide, so to speak. But there's a lot keeping them home, I mean, because they're playing like, four or five nights a week, you know, the, the more popular bands and the income that they make from that is probably more than a label could give them for a 10 piece musician, you know, 10 piece group to go out on tour or whatever. So that's, that's a, that's a long, it's a long mystery that is yet to be <laughs> discovered. Yeah. Why I think, I think it's like every, every, uh, different group has their own agenda or it's, their own story of maybe why they haven't made it out worldwide, because there have been quite a few that have made it out worldwide. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at Chuck Brown, if you look at uh, different musicians, there's a guy named Juju House who's played with a lot of different groups. Um, I can't name them all, but even Ricky Wellman, he's a popular or famous legend go-go drummer that we have in this area. He's passed away now, but he's played with Miles Davis, and actually playing Go-Go with Miles Davis. Mm. Yeah, and then you got like Juju. He's with the group Experience Unlimited. They had like one of the biggest Go-Go songs in this area called The Butt. And that was E.U. And they <laughs> you had, it was it Street Streep who did The Butt at the Oscars? Oh, yeah. You know, as a <laughs> tribute to Go-Go. So, I mean, you know, we're out there. We're just kind of laying low, I guess, so to speak. There are a lot of artists national artists that come here to get some of that sound and try to get some of it incorporated into their their grooves and their, their recordings as well. And I, I've been blessed to work with a few of
1: them. When did recording come on your radar?
0: Mid to late 90s, around, I guess it was about 97. My band, Huckabucks, was commissioned to do a Coca-Cola commercial. And mm. our music director, who was also our producer, had us in the studio, and up until this particular point, we always recorded live, either live at a venue or we set up in one room and we all perform like we we're at a show and we capture all of the parts. And a gentleman by the name of Roy Battle, Jr., he was our engineer and producer. He would mix all this stuff and have it mastered and they put it out. But this particular time, he calls me in the studio. He said, hey, we got to do this Coca-Cola commercial. And we're just going to flip one of these other songs that we normally do. it was a popular song called The Bud. And we flipped the song. We changed the lyrics. Same music, but the other keyboard player couldn't make the session. So I wind up doing like all the overdubs, all the keyboard overdubs. I was a keyboard player in the band. And I just fell in love with the process, man. I was just like, yo, so this is like I can sit here and layer as many times (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, we were working with 24 channels at that time, 24 tracks at that time on ADATs. But yeah, I just just fell in love with the process of having it where you can actually control every part and just hear everything so precisely and pristine. And I I was just like, whoa, this is pretty cool, (laughs) you know?
1: I don't really remember exactly the feeling, but, but I'm sure that you can dig it up from your memory a little bit. But that moment when we realize, oh, I can keep going. I can add stuff on top exactly. of stuff. just Your head just kind of explodes like, oh, now, oh yeah. I, now I'm into this.
0: That was my introduction. Well, actually, I started recording before that. I was doing some tracks. I had an ASR-10 keyboard and it had a built-in sequencer. And I was doing tracks, like in between gigging with the band, I was doing tracks for local artists and clients and stuff. And my first recording myself was, we had a uh, Soundcraft, one-inch, 16-channel, reel-to-reel.
1: A Soundcraft? I I forget
0: the model. Yeah, it was a a Soundcraft, reel-to-reel. Wow. Yeah, it was heavy. It was heavy as I don't know what. It was standing about yay high, about four feet tall had all the meters on the front and you had to calibrate it from the back. And then we had a old Yamaha console, I forget the model, but, and, you know, striping the track 16 with Sempty Tone and running it back through the the MIDI for the keyboard to play all the tracks out. And then once I kind of got into that, I would get Roy, after I track everything, I would get my engineer Roy to mix the stuff down for my clients and stuff, and then we would just split the cost and all that stuff. But yeah like when I really got the bug was when I went in the studio and we had those ADATs and I was just like laying everything to the live tracks and I was like yo this is really really dope.
1: That would have been Soundcraft made the SCM 760 24 track 2 inch. I I just looked it up cuz I was no, done. this
0: this one was a 1 inch recorder.
1: Oh it was a 1 inch. Okay. 1
0: inch recorder 16 channels. Okay. I think it came in a configuration of 8 or 16.
1: Eight or sixteen. But this one
0: was the sixteen. Okay, yep. well
1: that's that's new to me because I was not aware that Soundcraft even had an analog machine. But
0: yeah, it had all quarter inch inputs and outputs on the
1: back. Interesting. Wow. <laughs> Very
0: interesting. Yeah. Okay. Now that I you know I didn't know any better back then, but I was like, whoa. And it sounded really really good.
1: I mean, here's one on on reverb that is sold a long time ago, but. If anybody's curious, as a matter of fact, I'll put a link in the show notes for those that are like, Soundcraft analog tape machines? Crazy. But anyhow, the difference between, not to trash sequencers, but I mean, that's one thing, but to see it and and the physicality of it, I guess, on a tape machine, did it feel different in that scenario than it did with the sequencer?
0: Yeah, because the sequencer, I think it was limited in polyphony so like when you have like a bunch of intricate parts especially like percussion parts going and you may layer like electric piano and then you have like acoustic piano and strings everything hitting on the downbeat some of the stuff will cut off
1: oh, so yeah. like
0: syncing it to a, a tape machine you can get all of the performance out of the sequencer and just layer it with the right timing without the delay from the polyphony being limited
1: yeah eye-opening moment i'm sure Did you think, well, I like this, I may pursue this more than music? Or did, as a musician, did it maintain a foothold in what you do? Oh, yeah, it
0: definitely maintained a foothold. Okay. Because I was playing, we were pretty active until like the, maybe 2002, 2003. And we got together in 92. Oh, okay. Did, Did our first recordings around 94. And we had a really hot run in the DMV area from, like, 95 through 98, maybe. And we traveled. We were the first go-go band to play at the Kennedy Center. Wow. Pretty cool, yeah. When was that? I had to be, like, 97, I believe it was. Okay. Yeah, this is a festival that they do. I think it's called Am Jam or something like that. Okay. And we were the first go-go band to play there.
1: But... Along the way, did you continue recording and expanding your recording knowledge?
0: Yes. So, like I said, I went to Northern Virginia Community College, Mm. and I signed up for music theory and recording industries, but then I realized I was getting more out of just hanging around the studio that the guy that owned the band owned the studio. Mm. His name is Charlie Fenwick. He's a a force in, in the DMV area. Yeah, I would just be in the studio all the time, and I learned more just being in the studio, hanging out, than I was learning in school. I was kind of like at the top of my class at that time, and a lot of times the teacher would leave out and leave me in charge. And I'm like, what is this? Like, I'm paying my money for you to show me stuff, and you gonna leave out, and I gotta be in charge of the class? This ain't cool. So that's what that was, and... Like I said, I thought I was going to be a rock star with the Go-Go band, and I quit school. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, so when when the Go-Go band proved not to be the thing that was going to rocket you to stardom or buy you a big house somewhere, what did you do? And how did you feel about that? Well,
0: it was cool. What happened was, <clears throat> now don't get it twisted, Go-Go is big in this area. So, when you say buying the big house and everything, like there's some folks out here has, who has big houses from GoGo. <laughs> for me, the band just kind of grew up and grew apart.
1: Mm.
0: Everyone didn't have the same mentality as far as like wanting it to be like a main thing for them. They had responsibilities, got married and have kids and all that stuff. But I mean, for me, music has always been like the main thing for me. So, I just went into some, some different areas. I started a backline company, and I started working with a lot of the go-go bands, providing drums, percussion, keyboards, and things like that to different groups every night, every other night. So I sustained that for about 12 years. And then in between that, because that was like late night, and then during the day, I would go in the studio and uh, set up sessions with different folks in this area, and we had. Well, a few folks that come in from out of town, because Charlie Fenwick, he used to play with Otis Redding, and he had like a a whole list of folks that he kind of grew up with, and and people would call him for for different things, and he said, "Hey, well, just get with Rob because Rob can record whatever you need to do and everything." So, got my feet wet working with Peaches and Herb, and there's a group in the area called the Blackbirds. They were pretty popular in the seventies and the eighties. So I'll work with them. I, a matter of fact, I got a show with them this weekend. They're still doing their thing. And just, I kind of got into the recording part. Mm-hmm. I love, like, producing tracks, bringing stuff to life for people. They'll come in with their ideas, or they may have a song that they are written and they need music for it, and we'll get together and just put the tracks together and write the music, and we'll record it, and then I mix it and send it down to my boy in Atlanta to, to master the stuff up, and we'll put it out.
1: And were you running your own studio out of your home or uh, other location, or were you sharing a studio with somebody?
0: Most of my stuff, like a lot of the pre-production stuff, like the sequencing and stuff, I would do at home, mm. and then I would take it up to the studio that I'm. I still work out of. It's called Thump Studio. Charlie Fenwick owns that studio. We're still, you know, boys, and you know, I would I would just take it there to do the mixing and all of the overdubs and everything like that. And then once, like I said, once we get everything polished in the way that the client wants it, then we send it out for mastering. And then uh, I don't really get into the distribution part of it. I just consider myself the manufacturer.
1: You're in a studio now. Where Where is this studio? I'm
0: at home. You're at I'm home. I'm at home. It's just, I mix here mostly now.
1: And is that a direct result of COVID or did you just come to the conclusion it was more enjoyable to work at home?
0: It's more enjoyable to work at home. I've been blessed during COVID because I've been working like crazy with different churches, sending me files and having to mix all that stuff for their broadcast and everything. I was up to about maybe ten church mixes a month. Wow! Yeah, and you gotta imagine like getting files from people singing on their cell phones. Oh, and then (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's all good. Having to uh, line all the stuff up it was it was very interesting.
1: Were you doing those things where people were doing those videos of a bunch of different people and everybody sends their audio in?
0: Yeah. So one of the churches I was working with, they did all of the video production. Thank goodness. I didn't have to deal with that. So I just deal with trying to clean up the audio. You got HVAC systems in the background and you got buses riding down the street. You got TVs on in the background. So you know, Isotope was a good friend of mine <laughs> during COVID.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Isotope's a good friend of many people. Yes, sir. Yeah. Tell me about your history with doing work for the church. How does that come about? And it sounds like it's a repeat client. I mean, not just one church, but different churches.
0: Yeah. So the main church that I work with is called Beulah Baptist Churches in DC. Mm-hmm. And I've been with them since 2005. I kind of came on as an understudy or like an on-call recording engineer because they were doing like CDs and tapes and everything of their services over time engineers came and left we had a really good engineer his name was Michael Hughes and he was known throughout this area he was a really good engineer and he passed away mm. he was like he came in as a chief audio engineer he was doing front house and I was sitting next to him with a soundcraft recording console and and doing the recordings, but then when he passed away, they were like, okay, would you mind taking over his position, and I was like, sure, it'd be an honor, you know, so then I started doing the front of the house for the church, and so (laughs) I got the front of the house board here, and I got the recording board here, so I'm doing front of the house, and I go and throw the headphones on, and make sure that the levels are okay for the recording, going back and forth from 2005 to now, so now, we have a digital console, so the recordings, I do it two ways. I do like a multi-track into Studio One, and then I, I have a two-track SD card recorder that I record the stereo, and a lot of times the mixes are good enough that I could just use the stereo mix, but if we ever have to go in and do any post-production, I got the multi-tracks as well. As far as dealing with other churches, there's another mentor friend that I have. His name is Charles Harris. He has the Charles Harris Music Group, and he works with different churches. He's a front-of-the-house engineer, but he's a studio producer. And, I mean, this guy, he's hes crazy, and he works with, like, he knows everyone in gospel, like, period. So I got a recording that we're doing next week, actually. We're, we're going down to Richmond to do some gospel with this church. I mean, hes he didn't even know that I did audio. I met him in a, at a symposium. Mm-hmm. He was at this huge church at the time, and my church was affiliated with that church. And we went there, and I was like, okay, this is going to be great, because I know this guy, Charles, and yeah, I know he works with everyone, the likes of Kirk Franklin, C. C. Wine is like everybody in gospel, right? I was like, this is going to be amazing. I can sit there and ask some questions and stuff. Mm-hmm. And when I got there, the people who signed up for his class, when the Q&A part came, and they were asking the questions, I was like, okay, these people really don't know anything about audio. Let me just sit and be quiet. Maybe I could let them have their time with him because they're asking questions that is just basic stuff. So I was like, hey, man, you think I can call you? Like, we can have a conversation offline or whatever. He was like, sure. So long story short, we just got into this thing of just texting each other every now and then. About maybe four or five years went by, and then one day I just sent him a picture of me sitting in front of this console, and I sent it to him. And he's like, wait, what? Wait a minute. You do audio? And I was like, yeah. I was like, I met you at your church in the audio symposium. He said, yeah, but I thought you were just like one of those guys that were just getting started, didn't really know what they were doing. I was like, nah, I've been doing this stuff for a minute. So <laughs> so he called me, and then he's like, hey, man, I want to come over and check you out. So he came over to my house, and I gave him the spill. You know, like, I, I've been doing this stuff for a minute. Never really formally trained, but, I mean, who's formally trained? Like, you learn all this stuff in the street. Yeah, You know what I mean? You go in the studio, and you turn knobs until you figure out what it does. And he's like, yeah, man. He said, listen, I got this project, man. I want to try you out. On mixing. So he came here with some files from this church. I forget the church, but it was about maybe nine or 10 songs. And it had like a full choir, a rhythm section, drummer, organist, all that, right? And he sat right behind me and I started doing my thing. And I turned around just to ask him, like, hey, what do you think about this blend? You know, what do you think? He was like, man, you know what you're doing. <laughs> so, so <laughs> I was like, well, I'm asking you for guidance. Like, So I, I don't know, man. It's, it's It's been a thing where I just kind of get in there and do what I need to do. I mean, if it sounds good to me and if it sounds good to everybody else, I just roll with it and just go with it, you know?
1: And I guess the thing with doing live recordings of church, it's not just like somebody talking. I mean, a Baptist church, is there's music, there's talking, there's an yeah. audience. There's a lot of bleed from instrument to instrument. Oh yeah. I bet there's quite an art to capturing it.
0: Yeah. So my whole concept is to me, like a lot of people talk about bleed is not good, right? It's not a good thing. Okay. Some bleed is not good, but if you think about when you're in the atmosphere or if you're in the church, everything's bleeding all over the place anyway. Right. Mm -hmm. So if I got some control of that, then I just try to let it all blend together. I don't try to clean it and make it so studio-y that it just sounds unnatural. So my concept is when I'm mixing live stuff, I try to make you feel like you're in the room. You're experiencing what's going on on the stage. You're in the room and it's just all around you. And it's like Atmos before Atmos, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) That's right.
1: Well, yeah, because I mean, it's, I'm not going to claim to have spent a lot of time in rock and Baptist church scenarios, but heavy audience participation, a lot of action on the stage. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it's a great time, and it's a challenge to not only record but mix as well. I assume you're you're being paid to do that. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) It's not like you're a volunteer at the church.
0: Yeah. No, I I do volunteer some services, Mm -hmm. and I'm not saying that I'm the top paid person. But it does have to make sense for me.
1: Yeah. And it seems that churches these days are really expanding. It's not just old school church services. I mean, there's there's an AV component to a oh, lot of yeah. churches. And then you get yeah. into the mega churches and it's just like, it's like a sports yeah. event.
0: Right. I've been blessed to have the church that I'm with. It feels like a mega church, but it's really like a, a home church. You know what I mean? I don't know how many members we have because we still haven't opened up since COVID. Mm. I think it's about a 350-seater, mm-hmm. the actual building. But when we were, like, rolling before COVID, we would have, like, two services every Sunday and then Bible study on Wednesdays. And then just before COVID hit, we just renovated the sanctuary and got, like, all new audio equipment. Mm-hmm and broadcast equipment so it was like a blessing to have that in place so that when covid did take place and we had to like quarantine and all that stuff we were already in position to keep rolling so that was like a huge blessing
1: yeah you were able to get to the congregation remotely yeah with the yeah. with the message They can drop comments in the timeline, they can listen on any device, they can listen to it in high res, and if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. sampley.app Check it out. Do you have a day gig that you do?
0: I do. What's I your, do. I what, work at NIH as a contractor. I got a 260 seat auditorium that I manage, which the capacity for after the vaccine came out, uh-huh. the capacity limitation was like 25, but we were doing like a lot of virtual meetings and the virtual meetings were being piped in to the auditorium and then the fiber from the auditorium was going to a television operation center and then that stuff would get broadcast out to the NIH website. So the NIH stands for National Institutes of Health. National Institutes of Health is the largest medical research facilities in the world. Their main campus is in Bethesda, Maryland. Mm. But then they have like annex campuses in different places all over, so
1: So how did you get that gig? Funny thing.
0: Okay, with that gig, a few years ago, I was working as a freelance AV installer Mm -hmm. with this company. And the company went from doing installs to doing more actual AV work, like setting up PA systems, setting up microphones, speakers on sticks with video monitors and things like that. Mm -hmm. The company got a call from NIH to go out and do, it was like a symposium. And we had to set up, it was an auditorium. We had to set up audio for the outside of the auditorium, which was like an overflow area. And we had like five LED televisions. We had six sets of speakers and it was a week-long thing. And what they needed, they needed audio from the auditorium to be piped into the hallway for overflow, as well as they needed audio to go from the auditorium to their remote fiber setup to go for the broadcast or whatever, right? So like I said, the guy that I was working for, the company I was working for, they gave me this little Yamaha mixer, and I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? So I was like, okay, listen, I got something I can bring in. I borrowed a friend of mine's Apollo. Right. So I set up auxiliary mixes. I took the feed from the the auditorium. And since it's just like one or two microphones, they're just speaking from podiums and stuff. I took the feed from the auditorium and I piped it into the hallway
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I piped it into the broadcast folks who had the fiber. And I had each feed on a separate mix from my laptop. And the guy that was actually from NIH was like, hey, man, you, you're you doing all this from your laptop. You're running the broadcast mix. You're running the auditorium mix and you're running the mix in the hallway. On some headphones, and I'm like, "Yeah, which other which other way were you gonna do it?" <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, "That's pretty impressive." And you own this stuff? I was like, "Well, yeah, because the company didn't have it, so I had to borrow a friend of mine, the interface, and and this my laptop. I'm using the Apollo software to mix everything and send everything." there's some compression i had to do a little eq and everything i just sent the mixes out to the respective places so he said you ought to call my boss and let him know this type of stuff that you can do because we could use somebody like you so i did and he invited me out for an interview and the next week i was hired <laughs> wow. i was hired as a as a v technician so i had to learn the ropes they had a ql5 in their main auditorium that's a yamaha ql5 which i was used to working on the cl5 which is pretty much the same board it's just a little bit bigger and so i mean that was like easy for me and then i the only the other thing i just had to learn how to they had this thing called webex before zoom became really popular and i had to learn how to work webex and just talk to clients (laughs) you know hey you got a presentation i'll load it up for you hey does the mic sound good and that was pretty much it. And I've been there since 2018. So did you like the gig from the get-go? I did. I did. I liked it. It was,
1: it was pretty cool.
0: I'm still there.
1: And it paid well and had benefits? Well, you
0: know, my <laughs> mom always said not to say anything bad about anything. But no, they it, it paid pretty okay. You okay. know what I mean? I turned down the benefits package because then that eats into my cost. Like my wife... She's a healthcare provider, Uh and that's the main benefits that I need. I mean, they do offer 401K, so I'm involved with that part of it. But um, as far as health benefits, their package couldn't beat my wife's package. Yeah. I just turned it down.
1: Yeah, totally makes sense. So then you're an audio professional who practices the art of diversification because you're doing this gig, you're doing the church gig, and I'm sure you're doing other audio gigs for bands and artists. As you know, you listen to the show, I'm a huge fan of that method because it kind of insulates you from the possibility of losing the one gig. Right. And it keeps you afloat. Cost of living in that area, it's a little on the pricey side, especially in, in, in the D.C. area.
0: Yes, it is.
1: Do you find it tough to make a living doing this? I mean, I don't.
0: It's not tough. Would I like more money? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but... Are. uh yeah it's it's pretty cool like i'm I'm on the outskirts of d c so it's a little bit better as far as the pockets are concerned or whatever. Mm-hmm. but where I live, the opportunities just aren't that great as far as like audio professional. so I usually have to find myself driving like at least twenty miles to get to work n i h is fifty miles away from where I live, but all the other like if I'm going into d c that's like twenty twenty five miles. But I mean, you know, it's it's manageable. I'm dealing with it. It's cool. I wanna do more studio stuff, but just gotta I gotta tap into something to get those clients coming in.
1: Yeah. Tell me about your home setup and how it's put together roughly, you know, like the bigger picture of it. And do you have clients come to your house?
0: Okay, so as far as having clients come to my house, only a handful of folks. It's probably only been about ten people. Mm-hmm and I've, I've got clients for days, through the years, or whatever. I got a Midas Venice F24 analog slash digital console. I'm running Studio One on a custom PC that I built. I got this PreSonus 48 quantum interface, and that's pretty cool because I can run all of the analog ins and outs right into the computer from the console, And so I can actually mix using these faders and the EQs. If I'm mixing that way, I got it set up where I can go back into the computer on mm-hmm. another input, or I can mix down to either DAT or this Elise's Master Link.
1: Wait, are you, did you just say you're mixing to DAT? Sometimes. Wow. Where do you find DAT tape these days?
0: I don't know. I I got a bunch of them. Just <laughs> <laughs> I just I just recycle. <laughs> but I I want to say B and think you can get them from B and H or Markertech.com. Oh,
1: I had no idea that you could still get that tape.
0: I think you can. Yeah. Wow! But I, yeah, I got I got about ten of them that I recycle from time to time.
1: Okay. When it comes to making gear decisions, do you just buy on in what interests you, or are you are you buying based on need, or how do you make your decisions on what you buy?
0: I usually buy based on recommendations or me experiencing something else. Like when I did the sessions with CeeLo Green. His producer uses the Elam 251. Right. I knew about the 251, but I never actually heard it. And I was working at a studio that actually had one. So when I heard it and then he was telling me, like, you know, I use this on everything and every client, this cat producer Dale and everybody else, I'm like, okay, Elam 251. It wasn't on my radar at first, but... I can't afford that right now. So (laughs) I did some research and tried to find out what's the, the next best thing. And come to find out, a lot of people like the Warm Audio 251. And it's considerably cheaper. So I went and invested in one of those. And right now, that's my favorite mic. So I use that along with, I acquired a BAE 1073 500 series preamp. And it just sings. It sounds amazing. So yeah, usually like my purchases either comes out of necessity or just me experiencing it or someone recommends it. Like, hey, you need to check out this 1176 that Warm makes because the UAD stuff is cool, but you need the actual hardware, man. You got to check it out. So,
1: Do you ever find working in Studio One, as far as interfacing with outside people who may or may not be very Pro Tools centric, do you ever find a challenge there, or is it just a matter of batting wave files back and forth?
0: Yeah, it's mainly the WAV files. and there are a couple clients that are just like, they're diehard Pro Tools. So, I mean, I have Pro Tools. I don't really like it, and it's mainly because I just don't know it as well as I know Studio One. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I can, and I will use it if I have to. Or sometimes I've even done where I take this the, the Pro Tools session, consolidate all the files, do everything in Studio One and then drop it back in as as another Pro 2 session. Got it. But what I really love about Studio One, they got that 32-bit float thing going on. Now the new one has 64-bit float, which gives you like extreme headroom. But a lot of folks outside of using Studio One, it's not compatible everywhere else. So I would only use it mainly if I'm doing the whole project. Like if I'm recording, yeah. mixing, and I send it off to my mastering engineer and he,
1: he loves it. I used it for about a year, and I ran into some issues actually working on the podcast. I got into this thing where it would not undo, and I couldn't really, yeah, and I and I couldn't figure it out. It, it could have been a, the sessions becoming corrupt because I would do a save as and you know oh, build yeah. off the last session, but it eventually really, really got bad. And then it wasn't until I went to uh, mix with the masters, and they said, "Oh, make sure you bring Pro Tools files." I was like, "I guess I'm going back to Pro Tools."
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel you.
1: I would assume that your work-life balance is, sounds like it's fairly balanced, because I bet the NIH gig is, it's not like you're staying there till 2, 3 in the morning, I doubt, right?
0: No, but the part that kills me is the commute. Mm. Yeah, I got to get up at 4 in the morning. Why do you got to get up <laughs> at
1: 4 in the morning?
0: Because I got to be clocked in and at my station by 7 a.m.
1: Oh, okay.
0: And... Parking is like first come, first serve for a decent parking space. And then if I leave at 4 in the morning, I can get there by 5.30-ish. And then I can get a good parking space. So I'd rather have, like, the peace of mind on the road and the peace of mind. Once I have a really good parking space, then I can go inside and do my job. And then I just deal with the traffic at the end of the day coming home.
1: And, I mean, isn't there a metro stop in that area?
0: Yeah, but where I am, I would have to drive like 18 miles to the metro stop uh. and then get on the train and then I can catch the train straight to NIH, but that's 2 hours as well. So, <laughs> I'm kind of used to it right now. But outside of that, like I try to get all my studio stuff in either on the weekends or I just I just coordinate like if it's if it's a pretty decent project, then I would take off from work and let them know that hey, I got something I got to take care of. I'm gonna be out for a couple of days, and then I'll be right back. and you know, I'll just try to be considerate and make sure there's nothing heavy on the on the schedule.
1: Is NIH a, a five day a week, forty hour a week gig? Yes, it is. Okay, and then you got church on Sunday, couple services there.
0: Well, right now, like we're still, like I said, we're still under like COVID protocol. Yeah, in Washington D.C., they're lifting a bunch of restrictions and everything now, but. Our church chooses to stay virtual okay. as of right now. We have we've done like some in person services. So the beautiful thing about that is we can get there at like nine thirty in the in the morning. We pretty much got our whole system set up and we get in there, we're out of there by like 12 o'clock, and I'm on my way either to the studio or back home to hang out with the family, you know.
1: Yeah, so as far as the work-life balance thing is concerned, really it's your biggest hassle there seems to be the commute. Of course, that's a commute both ways. Yeah. How long does it take you to get home?
0: Going to D.C. is not so bad. Going to church, I can get there in like maybe 35 minutes. Coming home, maybe about 45, 50 minutes. Going to work, it's about an hour to an hour, 15 minutes going. Coming home is like between an hour and a half to two hours. Pre-COVID, it was easily two hours going, two hours coming home. Yeah. But since there's still a lot of cars out there, but not as many cars. But they're slowly coming. Everybody's slowly going back to work. So.
1: Yeah, I mean, during COVID, in the height of it, it was amazing how few cars there were on the road.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. That was that was a beautiful thing. <laughs> it was. It was, was a beautiful the thing. The silver for me. lining. <laughs> Yes, sir.
1: Well, so how do you feel about finances and how it relates to audio? Do you try to not overindulge when it comes to buying audio gear?
0: Oh, absolutely. So I have friends who have friends who know folks that get deals. <laughs> and, <laughs> and one of my main ways of getting stuff is on time. And then I'm working with a GC Pro guy and... He tries the best that he can with, with pricing and stuff like that. He'll set up a payment thing where if it's something that I that I got to have, he'll set it up where I can just pay it over six months and then no interest. So I've been blessed with been able to do that. And then like I said, I got a few friends who if I need to borrow something, I could just borrow and then a lot of times they won't even ask for it back. So I'm not going to name those folks. <laughs> because <laughs> as soon as I do, they're going to be like, hey, you remember that microphone?
1: What is the thing that keeps you coming back to audio? Because, I mean, yeah, you're doing some video stuff at work, I'm assuming, and some not really audio-centric things.
0: No, it's mostly audio. Oh, it is they mostly. Work. Okay, so, yeah. so
1: you're doing audio five days a week and you're doing it on the weekends. So yeah. th- What is it about audio that you love that you're doing it essentially seven days a week? Man,
0: you know, I just I just want to get a sound. I want it to sound good and I want people to hear it and I want them to smile when they hear it. So work is all vocals, it's a lot of dialogue. So I'm the guy that try to get the microphone sounding the best that it can over the Zoom call. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm the one with the one fader just riding the fader so it can sound even going down to the broadcast folks. I just love it, man, you know, and then the the whole thing with Working in the studio, like I said, just having control over all of the the instruments and being able to blend it the way that I think that it should sound.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then when people like it or I see them bobbing their heads and I look around the room, I'm like, "Yo, yeah, okay, this is pretty cool. So if they like it. I,
1: I love it. And then the church. I mean, there's that as well. Oh, yeah. So
0: the in-person church, like when they're there and you actually have control over what's being produced in the room, like. The people on stage are producing what they're producing, but then you have control over controlling the atmosphere. I try to tap into a whole aura of giving people what they need because, you know, folks are in church. They need church. Like there's certain frequencies that make people react differently to certain things. You can sometimes you can brighten them up. I don't know, man. It's just it's just a thing, man. And, and it's it's always it's like for me. It's always evolving, mm-hmm. like just sound and capturing sound, the way you capture it and just different things. It's just so intriguing to me. I love it.
1: You know, the, the studio stuff and the, the church stuff are probably more similar than the stuff you do at the NIH, yet there's a commonality, obviously, amongst all of those things. Do you learn things at the NIH that come up that you apply to the studio, that you apply to the church, that is it always... One thing feeding into the other, as far as knowledge of audio.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. But it's more so like like at the NIH. I mean, it's it's pretty basic, but it's necessary as needed. So it's like the stuff that I do outside of the NIH is usually pouring into me for using it at the NIH, in the mains and stuff. Like when you when I got there is like no EQs on the console at all. So it's like okay, let me tweak this and people there before me that were getting rings and feedback and everything so I'm like hey you know you turn this 250 down it cleans up a little bit right so that's how like everything that I've learned outside of the NIH helps me with the NIH the things I learned in church help me with when I go out and do a live gig with folks and the go-go stuff is just that's like I was born and raised in it so it's like You know, ever since I was a kid, I've been around, like, live musicianship. And to me, it's always, it always goes back to, like, just as far as, like, mixing and things. For me, I just want to put you in the room so that you can experience what happened at the time that this was captured. This song, this song is a beautiful song, but the way it was captured, you can actually close your eyes and visualize yourself there. You can actually be there in the moment with the song. You can be there in the moment with the church recording. You can close your eyes and you can just feel the spirit just engulf you, you know.
1: Do you ever burn out on audio? Of course.
0: (laughs) I sure do. (laughs) So, yeah, there's times when, you know, I'm like, yo, I need a break. Let me just chill out. And I got a friend and he masters all day long. And I asked, I'm like, dude, how are you wired? Like, how can you get up at? 12 noon and work to 12 in the morning, mastering records. And he's like super good. His client list is bananas. Everyone from Prince to Michael Jackson to, I mean, you think of somebody, he's, he's mastered them and he's just wired that way. I guess I'm not wired that way.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if you'll agree with this, but I find it sometimes it's a little hard if you have one gig in audio, that's kind of a nine to five lifestyle. And other gigs in audio that are not, and your schedule is kind of doing, you know, this with as far as your sleep schedule.
0: Oh yeah. Do you have difficulty <laughs> with that? Sometimes, well, not sometimes, all the time. Yeah. Yep, you're right. Yep, sometimes I just need to take a day and just recoup because I find myself throughout the week getting maybe four or five hours of sleep, and the older I get, I'm like. I can't do what I was doing when I was seventeen. I need at least five hours or six hours. Seven hours would be amazing, but yeah, I just I just make it work. Do you have kids? Yeah, I got a twenty-year-old and a thirteen-year-old, two boys.
1: Oh man, okay, and a a dog, and a dog. (laughs) So that's a whole nother element on top of all of this it's a factor of time and and of course you got to spend time with the family you have to spend time doing your craft it's a juggling act yes it is well rob i'm going to put a link in the show notes to your website which is a solo.to address like myself actually uh solo.to slash producer rob f and i'll I'll just put the link so audience, you don't have to take notes right now. You can just go to the show notes and click right on it, and it'll take you right over there, and check out some of Rob's stuff because he's got some cool stuff here. It sounds great. There's a, quite a few things here. Some stuff by CeeLo Green, Citizen Cope, Greg Rice, Black Alley, Belladonna. Well, Rob, it's great to talk with you. It's great to meet you. We've been we've been chatting back and forth. Yeah. My condolences to your. I believe it was your grandmother.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate that. It was uh, my wife's grandmother to be exact, and she had a beautiful homegoing service last Friday. Everything turned out really good. She was she lived a long time. She lived she was 82, I believe. Yeah. I helped with the slideshow, and it's like every picture she was laughing or smiling. Mm-hmm. So she had a really really happy life, you know what I mean?
1: Well, I I appreciate you squeezing me in and It's nice to finally meet you and well, face-to-face over Zoom, at least. For sure. Yeah, man. (laughs) Well, great to meet you. Thanks again for, for making time for me, as I said. And audience, check out the show notes. And that's about it. So, Rob, you take care, my friend. All right. Thanks, Matt. See you soon. See ya. Rob Fulson Jr. here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I certainly appreciate it. Remember, guest suggestions are more than welcome. There is a form specifically geared towards that concept there at workingclassaudio.com. Head on over there, fill that out. I would really appreciate that. That helps keep the show going. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew as usual. That includes Anne-Marie Plough on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith with his magical, mystical voice at the top of the show, Connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks,